And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we make sense of the borderlands of digital culture, technology, and memes. Today, journalist and author of TikTok Boom, Chris Stokel Walker, explores the strategy behind TikTok's explosive rise in the West, the differences between Silicon Valley and Chinese technology, and how the features of TikTok are designed to mirror people's performances back onto themselves, allowing them to feel like they are part of a community. Before we get into our conversation with Chris, A special reminder that the Meme in the Moment Festival will take place on Tuesday, August 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern at Caveat New York City. Academics, journalists, strategists, and memeticists will celebrate memes and share how they influence our lives. Join Vox's Rebecca Jennings, NBC's Callan Rosenblatt, Garbage Day's Ryan Broderick, researcher and strategist Dr. Anastasia Karklina Gabriel, strategist Jennifer Chang, and host Matt Klein for a celebration and interrogation of digital culture. Caveat is a fully vaccinated 21 and older venue. For those who are not in New York City or are unable to join us in person, you can purchase a live stream for only $5 via Caveat New York City's website, or you can visit digitalvoid.media for more information. Before we begin, please review us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Chris Stokel Walker, we are thrilled you are joining Jamie and I today. Your newest book, TikTok Boom is as in-depth and critical a look of TikTok as is available. It was just released in the United Kingdom and is available in the United States this October. Thanks for having me. And you can sneakily get around it if you order it from the publisher, I think, and get it a little bit early in the US. Coming off the heels of your previous book, YouTubers. Now, YouTubers, if we could start there a little bit, what got your interest? You kind of give a premise at the beginning of the book as to your origin stories and your interest level of watching. YouTube videos and then eventually watching TikTok. What brought you to want to be a journalist of internet video media? How did that come to be? So it's basically an attempt, Jamie, to justify the amount of time that I spend on it. So before I was, you know, an internet culture journalist or a digital culture journalist, whatever you want to term it, I was a digital culture consumer and kind of an avid one at that. So, you know, I would spend hours every day lying in bed just on YouTube watching stuff. And it kind of got to the point where I thought, well, I do have to try and make money out of this at some point. Yeah, I need to justify the amount of time that I spend on it. So I started to delve a little bit into some stories around YouTube, doing iterative reporting on the issues that the platform had, and then decided to, you know, utilize all those contacts that I built up over the years to then do a book length treatment of it because it kind of struck me at the time and this was 2017, 2018, and the book was eventually published in 2019, that there wasn't really a full length independent look at YouTube at the time. There was lots of stuff by 
YouTube employees a couple of kind of what I guess I would call hagiographies um, of how great the platform was, but nothing that kind of looked at it in the round. So it, it was basically that. It was, I spent a lot of time on YouTube and you know, my parents probably would have been disappointed in me, even though you know they live relatively far away, had I not actually bothered to try and make something out of it. <laughs> That's, that is uh, quite, uh, quite similar. Uh, I became... Uh, an academic of visual media in a very similar manner. I, several of my friends started one of the earliest web series that got purchased by CBS back in 2007 or eight. And just watching it, I wanted to learn how that worked. And so it began my uh, academic career in a very similar manner. So my dad wasn't just like, Oh, what do you do? Just watch cats on skateboards. And I said, no, there's much more. <laughs> there's this is a world out here. So then most recently this app TikTok, which is, I would say you, you premise this in the book that it's nearing a billion. And I would argue that within the next year, it'll cross that billion mark. It is meteoric by comparison to YouTube. Like, is it form and function or do you see something completely unique and distinct from YouTube's fr framework? Or is it just because it appeared at the time it did? And it's just kind of what video apps of this structure would do. I think it's all of the above. So the reason oh. why I decided to focus my attention on it was that as I was finishing up YouTube, as there was this app coming around the corner that started to kind of gain a little bit of um, ground on, on, on YouTube. And it, it became more popular the more I delved into it. So, you know, I, I tell the story in the book of going to VidCon London 2019, which was the first VidCon to take place in the UK in February 2019. And, and there was a sort of very fringe event which featured TikTok. And some of the people in the audience at that panel discussion were the most devoted fans that I've seen. It was really a kind of moment where I sat up and thought, well, this is going to be a really popular app just simply because of the devotion that the audience has to it. So there was this idea that this was something that was really resonating with a certain section of the audience and an expectation that because of the speed of technology uptake, as you well know, you know we see things rise much quicker and fall much quicker. But the I kind of took a, I guess, a calculated bet on the idea that this would rise very quickly, but it maybe wouldn't fall as quickly because it had that staying power of the devotion of its audience. And, and then the pandemic came along and we suddenly all turned to it in, in our droves. I've listened to a bunch of analyses about Twitter and social media and noticed that people have talked about how new users have a completely different way of using social media than legacy, I guess, uh, to be kind to us or me specifically, um, the legacy users and how popular you can be. And and some, I think it was uh, Ryan Broderick of the Content Minds and Garbage Day said, just because we've had the app like Twitter for so long or even TikTok, we wouldn't be able to be as good as someone who's new to it because there's just a new language that's being facilitated. And I, and I kind of find that like, I think even at, at several points, it's like you, you want to start your own TikTok and jump on board and actually create your own. But there is a, a, a new language being created by younger more what you would say like those passionate users like i think this is a different app than 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 before and and to me i it kind of makes me think like youtube is becoming television and tiktok is mobile like that they're just completely now distinct and i don't think they used to be as distinct no they didn't i think yeah, you're absolutely right in that there is a different visual language. There is a kind of, you know, you look at a lot of memetic stuff. There is this kind of different approach of what is understand 
Apple has kind of the content on there. So, I mean, you know, I've done a few TikToks largely in, in an attempt to kind of promote the book, but, you know, I always feel a little bit like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing there because I'm I'm conscious that I have the, you know, I'm 32, so I have you know, 30 years basically now of consuming culture, first through TV, then through YouTube. And the, you know, everything from the way that you present it to the kind of, you know, the voice to the style is completely different. There, you know, I kind of make fun of it in, in an odd way in that over the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of generally old dudes in the media try to adapt to TikTok and their entry level TikToks are always, I'm sat in a chair or I'm stood up in a stuffy office wearing a suit and their comfort zone is I don't want to do the dancing thing because they still think of it as a, a dancing app which it isn't necessarily anymore so they say what I'll do is I'll I'll put some text on screen which asks a question and then I'll do the thing where I point at different parts of the screen and text appears and like that's just corny as anything now I feel but it's it, it kind of shows that gulf between these two platforms although it is interesting that TikTok is starting to take over TV a little bit with its Amazon Fire Stick app with you know the Samsung Smart TV apps that it's rolling out and also with you know the extended video length moving out to three minutes which was one of those really interesting things that they they announced right as I was going to publication, which we managed to squeeze in a little bit of, but I'd love to have gone into more detail about. What's before I get into some of the the nitty gritty of it? What is the uh, hey guys for TikTok? Does that exist? Is there a unique signifier that shows that that's the app's calling card? You know, I don't know actually because there's so much various stuff. I mean, I think that it's less what a creator does and more the soundtrack that a creator uses so you know for instance there was a time period where everybody was using the git up and now you know on my feed at least and certainly on my, my girlfriend's feed which are two very different things it seems like every other video is Bo Burnham's song you know, Jeffrey Bezos I just I just hear that constantly to the extent that you know, it's kind of like tinnitus when you close your eyes and you've, you've gone to sleep you just suddenly hear it ringing in your ears and you wake up with it yeah I was hearing the uh, the end piece of that ABBA track for a while that was named Loki from somewhere <laughs> and the uh, a couple of loop tracks but yeah the Bo Burnham soundtrack Welcome to the Internet or Jeffrey Bezos is like every third every even on videos that make no sense when I'm watching like plastic being mil milled through a something I'm hearing it I'm like oh all right <laughs> that's that's it I think Gia Dol Tolentino actually wrote that in the New Yorker when she did her thing about uh, Lil Nas X and saying how it's really in that way, the memes that come from TikTok were that, that button you mentioned in your book, the button in the lower left, the music. Can you talk about how strategically that was placed in there and how good that is as an object? I know that comes from the previous apps that TikTok was based on. Yeah. So basically, you know, TikTok is often seen as an overnight success and that is because we look at it through a Western lens. But the reality is that A, the company behind it, ByteDance, is basically a decade old, a turned over $34 billion in revenue last year. If you want to, you know, pick a number, any number between about 140 billion and 600 billion, depending on how you value it and you have the size of the, the parent company behind it. And you know, the app itself is 
much older than we think it is because there is a Chinese version, Douyin, which has been around several years longer. And if you want to kind of see where TikTok is going in the future, then you just need to look at Douyin in the recent past because there is what um, uh, an academic called Dibon Divaldinos K, who's based in Australia, says is platform uh, parallel platformization. So it's this idea that you have two apps existing in two different systems, but they are largely the same. So Douyin looks very similar to TikTok. Um, and Douyin developed its its kind of look and its style by ByteDance employees basically downloading a hundred or so apps that focused on video and going through them with a fine tooth comb and saying, we like this feature from this app. We don't like this bit. We like the full screen video of this app. We like the way this app uses audio. We like the presentation of music and where you put these buttons on screen and basically sort of finely engineering this success, you know, it's often thought of as kind of a happenstance thing, but actually when you scratch beneath the surface, there is an awful lot of deliberative thought that goes into this. Yeah, that's, uh, you diagnosed this really well in the text part at the beginning, because there's several apps that I was really fascinated by that I actually learned from, from your book about like the, the one that got me the most was they had these mimetic structures that were built into it. And my favorite part about that piece, when you explain that, is these IRL fandoms that existed and people would sit and have, it had a certain honk, uh, a horn beep in China that if people were users, they could identify each other by the sound in public spaces. And I don't think I've ever seen that with, there's no fandoms that exist for Twitter or YouTube that when you're out in public, except for maybe, hey guys, that you know you're a user of that specific app. That must have played pretty strongly into the development of what TikTok became. Yeah, it does. And I think it's interesting because obviously it's very easy to fit these grand narratives into kind of simplistic structures. But the reason why I kind of really doggedly pursued the idea of writing a book on TikTok, despite the fact that initially my agent for my my books and the publisher that ran with YouTubers was pretty skeptical about whether or not TikTok would still be around by the time that I finished the book, was because there was this kind of Nehan Duanzi moment of people recognizing each other IRL at VidCon 2019 in LA. Um, I wasn't there, but I remember it was you know a few months after VidCon London and that kind of first ripple on the pond of this is going to be a big thing. And suddenly I start to see a lot of my peers and contemporaries in the US who are covering this digital culture space. And I remember waking up one morning and seeing on Twitter just endless streams of videos and pictures taken from outside the Anaheim Convention Center um, of what was essentially a flash mob. It was just a load of teenagers doing these choreographed dance moves for TikTok in front of the convention center. And I remember kind of thinking that's like a similar thing. It's kind of like a you know, wink and a nod and a kind of secretive handshake or something like that, where you know, oh, that person's on TikTok. And I just, it just, yeah, it has that weird kind of pervasive cultural impact, I think. It reminds me, there was a, uh, a very small co- convention at the Javits Center in New York years ago called StreamCon, I believe, um, which was a derivative of the Streamies. And 
there was a, it was a basically a Vine event at the time. And it reminds me of that. Like there was, I remember standing in the hallways with Alley Cat and like some other Viners at the time. And they were doing the Vine hundreds of times, like over and over. And I was watching this repeated event, this, this act that was occurring in space. And I, I was enamored by the boldness, but also there was this slight, I don't know how to explain this, a slight uh, apprehensiveness or like uh, awareness. So there's this, I don't want to call it embarrassment, but there's awareness that people knew they were viners. Whereas I feel like TikTokers are, are co- the confidence level is way different. Did you, have, did you notice that in the research of your, your book? Yeah. I think that's, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, and I, I, I will admit that in my early days, I wasn't as much of a fan of TikTok as I was of Vine. And that may be sacrilege to say, but I remember I mentioned in the book, my friend Fraser, who is someone who manages to kind of switch me on to a lot of these things um, because you know, he spends even more time on the internet than I do, which is quite astounding. And yeah, he was a huge Vine fan. And when TikTok first became TikTok and started to become a thing, I remember having conversations with him where he was essentially really bad mouthing TikTok. He said he didn't like the fact that it, it didn't have the irreverence of Vine. It was very, you know, the, the mimetic nature of it, the idea that you were just kind of copying someone, but just doing the same thing, but just in your own body, in your own bedroom. Um, he found very kind of dull and not very interesting. And I think maybe there is this, you know, for all that he found it not interesting at the time. And he's, he's, done a complete 180 and now is as devoted as anybody else to TikTok. But I think that maybe there is something in the difference between being a Viner and being a TikToker in terms of Vine kind of wore its weirdness with pride on its shoulder, but it was always a little bit like early years Bo Burnham in that like it was this cool thing, but it was weird. Whereas now TikTok is kind of like current day Bo Burnham, which is he's mainstream accepted. He's kind of an icon. And there is a comfort in the fact that you are doing something similar to everybody else that I think makes you feel less ashamed almost is the wrong word. But that kind of discomfort of I'm performing a weird skit in public isn't there with TikTok because everybody is doing it. Yeah, I think that's incredible. That's that's a really great answer. Thank you. Because that's I think that makes much more sense than anything else. I think TikTok is a cultural phenomenon where Vine was I miss Vine terribly and I I rue the day that the Pauls entered YouTube. But the uh, but that I do think that that's a very good way of explaining that how that works. So one more question before we get into the global uh the situation with uh, TikTok is about monetization. So you spend a fair amount of time on these really great stats and facts about views versus income and how much users make on this. And at the earlier in the book, you actually talk about the framework of the this, the the idea of a Viner or a YouTuber or a, YouTube or a TikToker like accessing the American dream. You know, like trying to like figure that out. And I think this is where we'll we'll pivot into like the American dream or the American concept of Silicon Valley apps. But this is this is when we talk about Viners or using the er at the end of any of these terms. We're talking about people who are native to those platforms, you know, so it means that they're not only making somewhat sustainable living off of the app itself, off of the income coming from the tech, but the culture that identifies them like Charlie is D'Amelio is very much a TikToker. Like that is her role. But we had the Pauls who pivoted and we had several Viners who couldn't, you know, and they, they ended up trying their best to move into a YouTuber space. Is, is TikTok more of a, a sustainable model 
perhaps than the rest of them because of its verticality and its ability to be a little bit more like confident building. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that it's, it depends on the scale that you want to get to, I think is the short answer for that. So, you know, you mentioned Charlie Zamelio and you know, we can't overlook the fact that Charlie Zamelio still TikTok's most followed user, basically the queen of the app, um, you know, a, a teenage girl still, which is incredible. You know, the, the Demelios are branching out their, their kind of brand to become almost like a Kardashian style lifestyle brand where they exist on multiple platforms. So, you know, as with every online creator, there is this fear that the thing that brought you to the dance can suddenly disappear very, very quickly and very easily. And so I think that there is an element of trying to put your eggs in multiple baskets. Um, and so they, you know, they have a YouTube series where, and I'll be honest, it is not the most riveting content in the world because as you said, there, there is this perception that you can just plug and play digital creators into different platforms and they will all succeed. Whereas actually, you know, the Paul brothers were very skilled at Vine and also very skilled at YouTube, which are two very different media and two very different styles of presentation. So if you want to become huge, huge and kind of have that cultural clout of being a mainstream celebrity, I think that you do have to still try and find a way off TikTok at least to run in parallel, but you can become huge on TikTok alone, which I think is what's quite so incredible about it. But you know, if you look at the kind of broad scale, uh, scale of the app and you just look at the sheer number of Linktree links in everybody's bio and uh, the Instagram, the Snapchat, the YouTube, the Twitter, the, the encouragement to follow me on all of those different things and also to buy my merch, I think that people have been burnt several times before by staying on one platform. And so they're much more conscious now if they're going into this to make it a business that they spread themselves more thinly. The, the story of this whole thing of TikTok is they've, you know, TikTok, the app have learned from the failures of their predecessors. The users of TikTok, the TikTokers, if we're going to add the ear to everything, they've learned from the predecessors on YouTube who had all these issues with, with kind of, you know, the adpocalypse and their rights and things like that. So the creators want to maintain their audiences and the relationships they build. But at the same time in the book, you write about the true aspirational labor involved with TikTok creators. And I want to specifically quote uh, you writing about musically. You write, in a new land, you can run a centralized economy, channeling most wealth to a small percentage of the population to enrich those people first. As a side note, those are those being the first movers or first arrivers on TikTok. You continue. They then become role models, showing that the grass is greener on the other side, encouraging more people to migrate from other apps to Musical.ly. It's a model that continued through to TikTok. And so I really want, before we jump into the global aspect of this, to focus on on how to effectively, or rather how TikTok was effectively able to persuade its first movers and first arrivers on the platform to not just stay, but to feel financially empowered or empowered through exposure. There are apps like Triller that tried to incentivize or lure creators to its platform via huge monthly retainers or other promotional tactics. What made TikTok's strategy so effective and how 
how does it specifically empower creators and give them exposure to the point where they feel confident enough to build their personal brand initially on TikTok, but then continue to build on TikTok while they branch off onto YouTube podcast platforms? So the, I think the difference between a, a trailer and a TikTok isn't that significant um, when it comes to how they deal with creators. So you, know, you, you pointed out that trailer has not been shy about you know, incentivizing people to join the app, throwing money around. You know, TikTok does exactly the same thing. Douyin, its early users, um, were essentially paid beta testers. You know, they, they would find creators that they thought would work on the app and they would say, well, let's give you a stipend you then give us feedback on the app you kind of get um you know roughly a, a, a all right but not amazing monthly salary and we will support you directly through monetization um and likewise you know that's carried through with tiktok you have the creator fund which i know is kind of controversial because a the payouts are relatively low in comparison to you know what you would make from a youtube advert and also in the grand scheme of things the amount of money um as a sort of percentage share of the revenue from that company is a tiny fraction of what it is on youtube but in terms of i guess what gives people the confidence to stay on tiktok if triller is offering you know similar amounts of money or a similar package if not necessarily competitive on a dollar for dollar basis is just simply that tiktok's app is better i think that you know <laughs> that plays a large part in this is you can throw a lot of money around as triller has tried as zin which is um you know another competitor that was big for a moment because it was offering you know money for you to refer friends as Kwaisho, which is planning i think to kind of expand into india and at one point was toying with entering the us it's a Chinese competitors at Douyin. All of those have tried directly monetizing creators from the off, but they've not had the ability to keep them around because as well as just throwing money around, you need kind of the infrastructure to convince people to join you. I mean, otherwise everybody would you know, maybe live in the, the steps of Russia in you know the, the darkest, coldest corners of the country because you could say, hey, we've got a load of oil money, come and join us. But if you don't have the infrastructure and the idea that makes this a comforting home, then you're not going to keep your uh, residents happy. So I think that's what they've managed to do is they've thrown a lot of money around and you know the money is not insignificant. Um, you know, in the book, I say that TikTok through, you know, high six-figure sum to get Cardi B to join the app with very little success. And they do that for other creators as well. But to get them to stick around, you have to also have decent service once you're there. And I think that's what separates them from the others who are throwing money around. And that kind of includes you know, YouTube and Instagram and all these other places that have set up creator funds. Um, it's all well and good having the cash flow, but if you don't have the stuff to back it up, then people will take the money, then run. I think you bring up a really great point about quality that I think is something that is not, that shouldn't be overlooked is you, you mentioned I, there's no way to talk about TikTok without the algorithm, of course. So we got to switch into that. But one of the things about TikTok is 
you the, the 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 filter system that pushes quality to the top, which is so different than other apps. Which is it 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 looks at the quality of the lighting, the setting, and everything, and so it almost enforces the idea that the app is not only high quality in its tech, but high quality in its content. And its algorithm, for for anybody who's not aware at this point how TikTok's algorithm works, it's different than most YouTubers or, or social media where it does a follower-based algorithm. This one does a content-based algorithm. Based on that, based on knowing that, how does that... That's just, I, I want to talk about that algorithm in, in a geopolitical sense. Silicon Valley versus China. Like, uh, How big of an existential threat is that quality level to development in in its China sense or its very Eastern sense to a Silicon Valley esque thought process. How, what is happening right now with its with its uh, actual tech threat? Before we get into the geopolitical threat, yeah, I mean, there's a huge difference. I think you know, it, it goes all the way from the way that you set up, as you said, the algorithm, the way that you collect and harness the power of data you know we all know about the social credit system in china and you know, to be clear i don't think that you're ever going to see a social credit system in the west in the same way but you you're starting to see sort of early inklings i think of how elements of that can be borrowed and you know even down to for instance the fact that you know tiktok now has a really strong live streaming element to it it has a really strong e-commerce element to it it's you know doing a lot more educational content you're starting to see elements of the chinese tech model which is very very different to the kind of silicon valley libertarian ideal of oh you know what we'll just we'll step back we'll see what happens and hope for the best with you know potentially not great consequences if you look over the last sort of 10 20 years or so and the impact that it's had Uh, but you do see a much more kind of controlled tech economy through china and a much more intrusive and you know I, I use the word surveillance not in the sense of you know I don't think that your your data is being sent to you know Xi Jinping or, or anybody else in China necessarily but I mean in the sense of every interaction that you have on the app everything that you do in the app is kind of being bounced back at you in a giant mirror to make you more sticky on the app to an extent that we've not really seen in a sort of granular detail way with Western apps. So I, I think there's this kind of really threatening future where we're realizing that actually for the last five or so years, maybe more, Chinese tech has become really, really good. There are, you know, issues with that and you have to kind of take the rough with the smooth for that but it is really really good and through tiktok we're kind of seeing the first example of this chinese model of tech rather than the silicon valley one and we're realizing that we like it let's dive a little bit into the surveillance and the constant mirroring and stickiness in a capacity that we haven't really seen yet in recent years we've in america been exposed to scandals ranging from the cambridge Analytica scandal and the Facebook data leaks. And we've seen in mainstream documentaries like The Social Dilemma, some of the tactics of Silicon Valley. And although scholars and researchers have known about these 
practices for a decade or if not longer. They really mainstreamed in the last three to five years. Can you expand on some of the differences between the stickiness and feedback loops of Western countries and what China is doing? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for instance, if you take at a very broad brush level, the differences between what are essentially the two super apps in each sphere of influence. So if we look at the West first, you kind of have you know, Facebook for good or evil is what we think of as our super app. It is, you can post stuff to your newsfeed, you can share photographs, you can share videos, you can join community groups, you can buy and sell and watch videos if you are one of the three people who have ever used Facebook Watch or something like that, which was kind of a an attempt to be a YouTube competitor. And they're all really clunkily integrated with each other and they're clunkily integrated with the other apps that Facebook owns, such as Facebook Messenger. So, you know, you have to download a separate app for that if you want to use it on your phone, usually. Likewise, Instagram, um, you know, it'll try and connect your Facebook friends with you on Instagram, but there's not much interaction otherwise. And also WhatsApp, um, you know, those things are kind of separate, but they have lots of touch points around your digital life. WeChat, which is the um, the kind of Chinese super app, is much more smoothly integrated in every way. And that's for good and for evil. So you can chat with people on WeChat. You can buy things on WeChat. You can interact with people on WeChat. You can read news on WeChat. You can call people on WeChat. You can do all of these different things. And you have kind of one login, one profile, and all of that data that you generate is used to improve all of the other services, which is great if you think of it in a convenient way, but it is petrifying if you think of it either in light of you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, you know, all of the different Netflix documentaries that you've mentioned, and also in light of the kind of surveillance state that we know of as China. But there's no denying that it's damn convenient by the same by the same token. So I think that's kind of the fundamental difference between the two. And the, you know, which way we go depends on our appetite for giving up more data and our sort of approach to tech companies in the future. And that's brilliant because I think you saying that we have to think and consider really hard about which way we go and how to shape tech companies in the future is a big discussion happening in the United States right now and was mainstreamed last year when Donald Trump, uh, head of the 2020 United States presidential election, decided to make TikTok one of his very many boogeymen that he created during his time in office. And whether or not it had anything to do with the fact that young TikTokers spammed and maybe misled one of his summer rallies. I would I would love to take a deeper look at the battle that Donald Trump started against TikTok and and probably forgot about and by probably, I mean, definitely forgot about and the importance of the Biden administration's follow through in handling TikTok. So there's the issue of surveillance in East versus West. But 
let's look at what Donald Trump was primarily worried about in terms of so many United States citizens using China created app and what has really unfolded since and some of the broader global implications of this battle. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack there. So to directly answer your question of what Donald Trump was concerned about, my belief is that Donald Trump was concerned about the fact that Joe Biden was not on a physical campaign trail over the summer of 2020 um, because of COVID. And therefore, Donald Trump did not have an opponent for his 2020 US presidential campaign. And everything that we know about Donald Trump is that he thrives by setting himself up in opposition to something or someone. And the unlucky person that drew the short straw or the unlucky company that drew the short straw should be was TikTok as a result of that. And you know, TikTok essentially became a Trump campaign moment. Um, you know, he, he spent thousands of dollars posting thousands of Facebook adverts that said TikTok is spying on you. That has really had a, a sort of long-term ramification in that it's poisoned the the well of public opinion on TikTok. You know, I, I did polling for the book that showed that a good proportion of Americans still think TikTok is a national security risk because Donald Trump told them it was for several months over the course of the summer of 2020. They still think that TikTok sends user data to China and that is hoovered up by the Chinese Communist Party, despite the fact that TikTok denies that it would ever do that, denies that it's ever been asked that. And many, many journalists who are better than I am have tried to find that smoking gun. And I've also tried to find that smoking gun and haven't been able to. So I think that is why Donald Trump set that out. But then we have, as you point out, this broader, deeper issue, which is we've diagnosed the issue, which is tech is sometimes not all sweet roses. Tech is sometimes quite evil, actually. I'm, I'm a tech skeptic, tech reporter. And so, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or even, you know, the people behind ByteDance as far as I can throw them because they are tech companies. They are designed to monetize our attention, our data. We've identified that as an issue, but what we've done is that we've misdiagnosed the cause, which is we've got two things conflated here. We, we've we come to a recognition around about 2020, and, and I know it started a little bit earlier in terms of Cambridge Analytica was 2018, but it reached a head of steam that we realized there was an issue with tech in 2020. And that was around the time that TikTok became popular. And so we thought there's an issue here with Chinese tech. When in actual fact, it's an issue with all tech. TikTok isn't doing anything fundamentally that different from Facebook or Twitter or whatever. The the example I always give is if your kid or your grandkid is posting videos on TikTok and you're worried that, you know, a, a little Chinese spy in the corner is somehow watching what your kid is doing in their bedrooms in suburban America, all they need to do is to go onto YouTube and onto Twitter and onto Instagram, onto Instagram to see the self-same content posted from the same bedroom by the same person. Um, you know, we overshare and that is the issue. It's not that we overshare with an app from a background of being in China. It's because we overshare with all tech. So yeah, and, and that's not to discount the many, many issues with China. You know, this is a, uh, a country, a system that advocates genocide, that rewrites history, you know, that does have fundamental issues with technology, particularly in hardware. You know, Huawei is a 
big tech company that you know many Western governments refuse to let into the inner sanctum of its communications networks because there is a real risk there that valuable data could be hoovered up and sent to China. But I'm not convinced and I've not found evidence that people really care about Charlie DiBellio renegading. You have to ask your kids about that. Being a huge national security risk. I just, I, I don't buy it, to be honest. I think let's close with the question then of the interior of the app content itself, because TikToks, as you mentioned, like they're moving toward a three minute bit now, but at 60 seconds each, you could consume 60 videos an hour. It's like you're just consuming this and then possibly more than that, because my wife and I spend our evenings, that's how we go to sleep. We flip through TikToks to get some satisfying content with, of course, the Bo Burnham song on it. <laughs> and the the content itself is moderated. And I we Josh and I are familiar with several of the trust and safety team on TikTok. And we're our, our friend David Pogar mentioned in your book, The Tech Ethicist, talks about how important it is to have moderation at a at scale. How's TikTok doing uh, in maybe by comparison, or how's it doing with just the, the pure volume of material being uploaded? Yeah. So the numbers are really hard to come by. Um in the UK, we know from parliamentary testimony that 1.6 million videos are uploaded every single day to TikTok now. In the UK, there are roughly 17 and a half million monthly active users. That is, you know, 17.5% of the US user base. So if you, to do a very bad rule of thumb, if you multiply 1.6 by 17, by whatever the difference is between 100% and 17.5, then you get roughly the number of videos that are posted every single day. And you know, David Polgar will, will know much more than I do about that. But um, TikTok is much more reliant on computer-based interventions for its content moderation, which has good points and bad points. So, you know, they put out transparency reports every three or six months. And in that, they always say, hey, we're doing such a good job. But, you know, 87% of our videos were removed without anybody ever viewing them. And 90% were removed without anybody actually reporting them to us, which is great when it works. And, um, you know, TikTok have kind of been relatively open in explaining how it works. Basically, if their computer vision systems or their algorithms spot something that they think may be contentious, it gets basically shunted into a queue that gets sent to a human moderator who is then given time to look over it. But, you know, they're given unrealistic targets to go through every single day. And so they're not perfect. But what's interesting is it's not necessarily a case of whether TikTok is doing better than other apps because better is so subjective. They are much more interventionist, I think, than other apps. And partly that's because of the relative youth of their user base. Although, you know, they make a big deal of the fact that two thirds of their users are over the age of 25 worldwide now, but they have, there's still a significant majority that are young and therefore they need to be careful of that. But then they also, they're much more interventionist because of their background. Um, you, know, you have to remember that this is an app that was initially designed to exist in a controlled economy, a controlled state of China. And so all of their moderation tools, all of their moderation guidelines initially, and they've changed since then, were designed to coexist with the sort of self-censoring Chinese regime. And so we kind of have, I guess, the faint outlines of that remaining 
in the Western moderation systems now that TikTok uses here, the reason why they are able to say such a high percentage of our videos are taken down for infringements of our rules without anybody seeing them is because they had to develop that system in order to not fall foul of the Chinese state in China and they've just co-opted that over here. So whether it's better is a difficult one to answer. It kind of depends, I think, on your attitude to, to censorship and invasiveness. One last question. You have you seem to have your eye keenly on this because your your career trajectory is on this. YouTube is an evolutionary state of stasis, it seems. It's it's really found its its niche. TikTok, it seems, is a very good evolving or adapting to the world around it. Is it is there an app after this or is TikTok going to be the next thing of the next half decade? I can't no one can predict past that. Is this is this where we are at for a while and because it will adapt and change or is there something on the horizon that you're seeing? There isn't really anything at the minute. You know, I, I ended YouTubers the book by saying hey there's this app that's just come about that could be the next big thing it's called TikTok and I felt really smug about the fact that that turned out to be correct because it was you know over the course of writing that book it had been several years and you know at one point I had a, a paragraph in there that said hey Facebook is coming into the video space and it may overtake YouTube and I would have looked really stupid if that had gotten to print and so you know it, it's difficult to make these big bold predictions but I haven't yet seen an app that is changing the paradigm in the same way that TikTok was as I was putting the finishing touches to my book on YouTube in 2019. And that came to fruition in 2021. So as I was writing the final bits of the book and frantically changing it because TikTok was changing so fast earlier this year, there wasn't something that I could point to and say, this is the next big thing. You know, buy your stock now or anything like that. I think TikTok has changed things so much and has so carefully engineered its success and its guaranteed continuation of success that it's likely to be here, as you say, for the next five years or so in a dominant position. I think realistically, the question is, when does it overtake the old guard that we know of now on social media? Because we can't forget it recently crossed 3 billion downloads and was the first non-Facebook app to do that in history. So this is here to stay. You should pay attention to TikTok. TikTok is important because it's a thing that you're going to be using for the foreseeable future. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Your book, TikTok Boom, is absolutely phenomenal. It's a must read and it is hitting the cultural zeitgeist at a moment when we need increased digital literacy and digital culture awareness. So thank you so much again. Where can people find you and where can people continue to keep up with your work? Uh, they can find me on Twitter where I am at Stokel, which is S-T-O-K-E-L. Um, if you really do want to see my terrible TikToks, then my username is the same, but it's a, a zero instead of an O. But I'm really not good on that. I'm, I'm not attractive enough for TikTok or inventive enough. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much again for your time. And again... Anyone in the world can figure out how to get the book right now. But for those in the United States, the book will be out in October. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and share it with someone you feel might find this conversation valuable. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can write to us via our website's contact form at digitalvoid.media or follow us on any social platform and provide us with feedback. 
Tickets for Meme in the Moment are on sale now at Caveat New York City or digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week.